I'm Wayne Rubin, and I want to welcome you to the podcast, Hard Yards in Leadership, where we explore the tough leadership challenges experienced by successful leaders along their journey. I hope hearing their stories will help you predict, prepare, and survive the inevitable challenges you will face on your leadership journey. Let's get into it. G'day, folks, and welcome to this episode of Hard Yards in Leadership. Well, I've had an ambition to learn leadership lessons from leaders with different backgrounds, whether it be founders or people in big business, not-for-profit sector, and even the military. Today's guest is Dina Koppel, and she started as a high-flying lawyer destined for an illustrious legal career, but she decided to follow her passion and took a hard left turn and became an entrepreneur and a founder in the F&B space. As life progressed, she became a parent and a partner and found herself living in different parts of the world, rethought things and chose to devote her time and considerable talents to the community. And that brought another whole set of challenges in leadership. So in today's episode, I'll be exploring some of her story, including how she struggled communicating to employees in retail after transitioning from the refined environment of a big city law firm. Some of the hurdles of trusting employees when you start to realize that you got a senior staff member who'd been stealing from her. And what made her realize that she needed to pivot and redefine her career and how she went about things and redefine success and, and, and how she was going to spend her time. And I'll be asking, obviously, for her to share her lessons on leadership through multiple career transitions. I so look forward to this conversation with that. Welcome, Dina. Thank you very much for inviting me. Been looking forward to this conversation and your journey, I think, is going to be different than some of our other guests and there's going to just be so many interesting stories. I can't wait to jump in. So let's let's get going. Um, Dina, the, the, the first thing I'm always fascinated to explore is at the beginning of your leadership journey, if you sort of think back, what was the first time that you recognised that you had some leadership responsibility? How did that come to you? <laughs> Well, I guess, uh, you know, it goes back to school. I was captain of the debating team, house captain, school captain, head prefect. Don't think the leadership in, in name, obviously, have a name. But I guess what really came to the fore was there certainly weren't popularity contests. I was possibly not the most popular school captain ever. But they come with lots of responsibility. And, you know, when I look back... Now, I think we had no guidance about that you are a leader or what being a leader is now, you know, at school. And and now I look at kids at school and they get all these programs and stuff, which, gosh, I wish we'd had. And we certainly didn't have in those days podcasts and even as many books. Of course, there wasn't even the internet, but, you know, that's how old I am. (laughs) But yes, it goes back to ancient history to, to school when... I was probably my first leadership roles. And then actually at university too, I stood for, I was the vice president of the Law Society. And that again, had lots of responsibilities rather than much glory, uh, despite the name. Yeah, not, not, not a very good pay packet either in those situations, <laughs> is it? <laughs> Definitely not. Cousin. And I somehow didn't learn because I keep volunteering and putting my hand up for non, non-paid leadership roles, but never mind. You know, it's a lesson in itself. <laughs> And it's thank heavens for us all in, in, in the community that people like you do that. But it's interesting, you know, you, a substantial proportion of guests on the show do talk about school and, and university as, you know, first leadership experiences. You know, if you think back to kind of some of those experiences where, like you say, that there wasn't a rule book and there probably wasn't a lot of mentoring and so on going on either, 
How were you learning about leadership? I guess you just, well, you, you learn on the job, obviously, and you learn what works and what doesn't. And I think when I reflect back, the biggest lessons I was learning was that it's all about influencing. Because you have a title, but, you know, God only knows amongst teenagers, you don't have power to, you know, despite the fact that you have a flashy badge. So it is all about influencing. And, you know, if you wanted, if I wanted to get people to do the things that I had, the ideas that we wanted to make happen, I had to influence. And frankly, you know, whether it was the students or the teachers, it was, you know, and it was just telling doesn't work, asking works, uh, suggestion works. You know, I guess it's the earliest time I learned about the whole what's in it for me because that was still a thing back then too, you know. Why should I? Yeah. And so lots of lessons in that phase. Let's get then into the workforce and whether it be kind of like org chart leadership or just realising you're in a position of leadership, what were the circumstances there of the first time that you kind of was like, I'm in a leadership situation here? Well, I started my career at the then August organisation called Anderson, Arthur Anderson, and then later Anderson Worldwide. And so it wasn't very long before I had people who I was responsible for, who I had to delegate to supervise their work. But in many ways, I wouldn't really have called it leadership to the extent that while I had to, I had a responsibility to guide them, it wasn't a hiring or firing role. And I think there's a big difference there. You can kind of, you know, if you're not great at it, you're not great and you're not popular, but, you know, it's different to being a, a true leader. I would say the first real leadership role came when I eventually left there and did what is probably not the obvious for an international tax lawyer to do, which was set up a business in coffee and sandwiches. Slight left field. <laughs> it was very left field, but I had a passion for food and it was well before Starbucks or Pret-a-Manger came to Australia or it actually never did, but you know, it was a gourmet sandwiches and coffee the way you wanted to have it. And I had a bunch of, I had a business partner. I was responsible for food and finance, the obvious combination. And I had a bunch of kitchen hands that I had to train up and staff that we had to give instructions to. And regularly I'd get these blank faces or sometimes even tears. I said to my business partner, I don't know, what am I doing wrong? And it was a good question to ask because he turned to me and he said, you talk to them like they're international tax lawyers and they just do not understand you. And and even though I was talking food, I wasn't, the real lesson was I wasn't talking to their listening. And that's actually something I've taken through all my life since, that it's about listening to people or understanding what they hear and what they listen and then communicating to their listening, not just communicating the way you want to. And that really was that time that I I think I really developed the first time as a, as a real leader in understanding yeah. that. I love that line about you're not talking to their listening and I think so many of us in, in early leadership roles we don't put ourselves in the in the shoes of the people that we're working with. And whilst the intention isn't necessarily to talk down to them, just the adaptation of language and style and whatever else is is just a significant miss. And and then we wonder why, you know, we're not being able to 
you know, your words again, influence them. You're telling them, but the, the influencing is a, is a massive miss, right? Mm. And you see it now. I mean, in any leadership role, you, often you have to get up and speak and you want to make these big speeches. But, you know, I actually think one of the reasons someone like Barack Obama did such a great job was he spoke to people's listening. He had these amazing concepts, but he said them in such simple terms, in short sentences, in the way people could listen to them easily. And, you know, I recognized that very quickly when he started to come on the scene because it was something I was so aware of. Mm. Tell us a bit more about those early days of, of being an entrepreneur because, again, I mean, we said before it was a massive, massive left turn that you took from corporate and tax and legal and all of those sorts of things to suddenly running your own business. My, my guess is that there were probably a few other things that didn't exactly happen as per the, the, the rule book. Uh, yes. Well, you know, it was just hard yards. Forget about hard <laughs> yards in leadership. In, in some ways, it, it was. And it was learning really from the ground up. It was learning what my strengths were and what my clearly, you know, weaknesses or just not even have them, skills I didn't have. You know, there were hard days too. One of our first senior employees we discovered was stealing from us. And, you know, that was such a, apart from the fact that when we confronted him, he said some terrible things that actually I don't think anybody said such terrible things to me ever since. And I, you know, I had to look to take on board that that wasn't about me, that was about him, but that that was pretty hard to do at the time. Um, but it was such a an emotional blow too that we'd all been in this together and and literally my business partner and I were doing hard yards to make it all happen. It was a new concept. It was trying to educate the market as much as anything. And to have someone steal from us was devastating. But, you know, you just then we had to pick up and change our systems and rally the troops. And at the end of the day, you know, we went from one outlet to four outlets. I thought it was going to be a retail Monday to Friday business and we were very quickly doing corporate catering and wholesale and so it was it was a fabulous experience. I learned an enormous amount about marketing that I, you know, retail I had had no experience about and that's actually, you know, when eventually we sold the business to someone and, you know, I look back and say, gosh, those four years were amazing in terms of the lessons we learned about so many Mm-hmm. And the ability to be able to say I went from international tax lawyer to sandwich queen is just, you know, beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> they did say at one point we made the best sandwiches in Sydney. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite a mantle to wear. <laughs> and let's stay in that space of kind of, you know, working with people who are doing jobs that are very different and so on, you know, something that I think is always fascinating to explore with, you know, people who kind of take up that entrepreneur angle is, you know, you quickly find yourself having to employ people to do jobs that you don't necessarily know how to do yourself. And I just, you know, I wonder as you reflect back on that combination of, you know, influencing and 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 inspiring and, and, and whatever, what were some of the learns that you took in that time and, and maybe, again, were there some also uh, times when it all kind of went a little bit wrong? Yeah, I think the interesting thing that you ask in that is about taking people on who can do jobs that you can't. And, and maybe it's my 
personality, but, you know, I had a business partner who certainly did the marketing and I relied on him for that. I kind of had a sense. But in terms of the food side or the service side, I mean, I learned how to do all of those things. So I made all the sandwiches before I wrote the recipes to for other people to make them. I would be down there and then, you know, it was funny that I was down there pulling coffees and taking orders at, at 7.30 and Sydney CBD. And people who I went to university with and who knew I had been a tax lawyer and knew I'd been in London were like, what, is that you behind the counter making coffee? One of the things I think I learned was I could only demand of people stuff that I was prepared to do myself or I knew what to do. And and I think maybe that's something that I had been taught and really has stayed with me all the time is, is treat people the way that you would like to be treated. And in a way, that was how I did the job. So I wasn't prepared to ask someone to come in and open up at quarter to seven in the morning if I wasn't prepared to come and do that sometimes too or I had done it. There comes a time where you can't do everything and you've got to step up and is it more valuable for me to be doing that or doing something else for sure but you know would I ever be prepared to step back in or to roll up my sleeves and make sandwiches and if we were pushed for a catering job? Absolutely and you know part of the reason I guess I ended up leaving was that too often on a Sunday something would go wrong and I would get a call and I was in the you know in the wholesale kitchen making stuff when I had tiny little children and that wasn't really ideal so you know the, the lesson there really was about you can be demanding but you can only be demanding if you're prepared to do that too and and some jobs are I mean honestly Retail food has got to be one of the hardest things in business to do. Yeah. So another part of that that journey that I I wanted to explore, Dina, because I think you kind of touched on it, but it's something that I know you know comes up for for people sometimes when they do big career left turns, and there's a sense of how do other people see that versus what you're making as your own choices for your own life and kind of your choices about where you're going to find whether it's joy or whether it's fulfilment or whatever it might be. And that doesn't necessarily always align with what other people believe the staircase is supposed to look like. You know, I wonder, is that something that, that, you know, you gave thought to, you know, as all of that was unfolding and how did you deal with that? Yes. Well, that was the first time I did the big pivot and I'll come back to that. But, you know, I do sometimes say now I'm an aging millennial because I've changed careers probably five or six times across my life and quite weird pivots. But yeah, sure. Look, when I first said that I was going to leave Anderson, my father said, you spent five and a half years at university. Why are you going to sell sandwiches and coffee? And then, yes, there were all these people who... I knew who were shocked to see me, you know, when I explained, you know, I, I'm leaving. In a way, it was I, part of the reason I left Anderson was I had been involved in creating the structure that allowed the two organisations at the time, Arthur Anderson and Anderson Consulting, which became Accenture, to split. And I didn't want to work for half the organisation. And I had had two small children in London. So I was pursuing something that I wanted to do for personal reasons. And yes, I had to, in my head, say, I am not going to be a partner in a big firm. But honestly, and and I've said this many times since, I couldn't see anybody 
at that time that I wanted to be. And they had come back and said, come and be the first female tax partner in Australia. And there were no other ones. And I didn't like the look of what a, being a tax partner was. So it was quite an obvious step to do to change. And yes, people's perception is weird. But you've got to just, when I was younger at Anderson, someone had said to me, what do you see outside the window? And, you know, glibly, I'd said the Harbour Bridge, the Opera House. And he'd said, no, it's a world of opportunity. And I had said, this is my opportunity. And each time I've done a pivot, it's because there's an opportunity. And it is about being true to yourself. Much later in life, I've learned, and now it's much more popular to talk about your purpose and what drives you and being true to yourself. And look, when if you'd asked me, did I want to be a tax professional? And just fell into it. I was lucky. It was fantastic for 11 years, incredibly stimulating and interesting, but it wasn't like I was driven to be a tax lawyer. So I did sit down one day and go, what am I going to do now? And kind of came up with that idea. And anytime subsequently, when you get up in the morning and you don't feel like doing that work, and that happens a few days in a row, not just like I've got a bad headache, then it's time to say I need to do something else. Yeah, and that's a that's a wonderful lesson for listeners out there. You're listening to Hard Yards in Leadership, where leaders share the stories of their hardest yards in their leadership journeys. I hope every leader who hears these stories recognises that the things that they find hard are the same things that the rest of us leaders find hard too. It's my dream that every leader finds the joy in leading. It will help you be a happier person, a better leader for your business, and a better leader for those that you lead. If you like the show, please subscribe, drop us a review, and most importantly, share to others who may benefit from it too. Now back to the show. You talked about multiple pivots. Dina, let's move forward on the on the time scale and 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 you want to share another pivot with us. Well, so having been international lawyer and tax lawyer and 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 sandwich queen, it was like, what do I do now? And the next two roles were kind of advisory roles where I was working with organizations to help their leaders or help grow the business. So in one case, it was in a law firm working between law law firm partners and their clients and helping them communicate and understand and set strategy for for the firm. And the other time was for a not-for-profit where the leaders wanted to grow the business from being fairly small to sort of being quite national and needed systems and processes. And, you know, in both those cases, I wasn't really the leader. I was an advisor, but I had great exposure to leaders. And that was really informative in terms Mm. of shaping my own views. Mm. I think the biggest thing I learned at that time then was, well, now it's called, didn't have a label then or I didn't have a label for it, but now it's called the leadership shadow. You know, what do leaders do when they're not actually in the spotlight? How do they talk to people the rest of the time? How do they deal with each other or deal with you or deal with people when They think people aren't watching. And, you know, I had great examples and I had terrible examples. Uh, You know, one, the managing partner of one of the firms I was at, he did what we now call managing by walking around. He walked the floors, he said hello to people, he talked to people, he knew everybody's name. He was 
friendly and familiar and people that made the culture of something that you could go and approach him and talk to him. And that's a really big thing of culture too. And in an, at another time, you know, these leaders who spoke beautifully with their clients and, and amazing. And then there was a bit of a disagreement amongst the partners about something and all the leaders. And, oh, my God, the way they spoke to each other was frightening. And, and I thought, this is actually the problem with this organization. It was kind of like the penny dropped. And I realized that actually they're not walking their talk. And that's what's holding them back. And that was the cultural problem in the organization that actually they didn't live their, their values. And that's, that will hold an organization ultimately back or a leader. So quite different. So let's talk about that, that phase and, and, and specifically the, you know, what you're just describing, because I think I talk to a lot of people in different phases of their leadership journey who, kind of hear this whole thing about the leadership shadow and the kind of like, you know, walking the talk and all of those sorts of things. And at one level, I kind of get it. At another level, it's, it's kind of like, you know, but does it really like, is it kind of more just like, you know, leadership theory designed to kind of sell TED Talks and books? And I guess in that phase that you're describing, you're in a, you know, a kind of a box office seat to see the difference in people and business performance and whatever else between, you know, leaders who are living the values and leaders who aren't. Talk to us about that. Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's as simple and sure it does TED Talks and writes books, but it's as simple as are you the leader or the CEO who if uh, I'm dating myself now, it, you know, if in the corporate kitchen, if there's a queue for the coffee machine, you know, are you happy to wait at the end? Uh, I mean, last week someone told me the story of them, and I probably shouldn't name names, although I'd love to put his name up in lights because of it. But this person went down for an interview at, an, at a very well-known sports organisation with someone from HR. And they're sitting in their corporate kitchen and the head coach of this leading team walks in and makes coffee for everybody. Now, that is setting a leadership shadow. Nobody is too big or I'm not too important to make coffee for everybody else. And and that was the kind of examples that I could see when it worked. And as I said, when it didn't work and these guys were attacking each other, Actually, everyone in the room felt who wasn't part of that conversation but could see it felt really, really uncomfortable and did not want to be around. And that's it, it, absolutely that shadow happens, or whether it's shadow or shine, you know, it might be a sunbeam as well. Yeah, I love the story about the senior coach and the making the coffee. You know that the, the you know, Simon Sinek's um, leaders eat, eat last kind of plays in that space and. And what it teaches us is just how powerful it is when out of just, again, it's someone's values and sort of like, you know, I I choose to serve rather than choosing to be served. And, you know, we were able to observe as you're sharing kind of like the the impact that that makes on people and the amount of engagement and, and, you know, powerful drive that that brings out in people. It's those simple gestures coming from an authentic place, isn't it? Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. And and that 
you know, sometimes it's as simple as I said, that idea of treat people as you would like to be treated. So don't expect something from someone that you wouldn't be prepared to do yourself is a great place to start. It's the easiest place. You know, if I was standing in this queue and someone cut in, would I like that? No. So I'm not going to do it. You know, it's as simple as when you're driving in Sydney traffic and, you know, I'm like, well, how would you feel if I cut in on you? I'm saying to the driver, but he's obviously not hearing me. Probably happens in Melbourne traffic too. (laughs) (laughs) But they are the simple lessons, aren't they? Yeah. 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 That's very much values-based leadership. It is, isn't it? Yeah. It is. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Dina, back on the timeline. Let's take another jump forward. Where do our elevator doors open now? Well, we could do two more, but let's just probably pivot to the most recent pivot, which was eight years ago, my husband, well, actually probably 10 years ago, but my husband came home and said, how would you like to move to Singapore, Uh, which took about 18 months to make happen. And so about eight years ago, I moved to Singapore. Just when, to be fair, the previous pivot was coming to fruition, which was trying to sit on boards as a non-executive director in Australia. I'd done the hard yards there of a thousand coffees and talking to people. And now I was landing in Singapore, where as much as I love Singapore, it is not an ideal place for a white female who's a trailing spouse to find non-executive director roles. So, you know, after less than a thousand green keys, I worked out that life wasn't going to be kind of where I thought I was going. There were lots of hurdles and barriers. And I had to sit down and think about what do I do now and how do I look at this? And and I guess the lesson that I had was really to look at things from a different perspective. And, you know, it turned out that I, when I did that and when I thought about things, sort of from a different way of thinking about it that I could find interesting roles. And so as it turns out, you know, I I became a a coach because all these people were asking me for advice about what I had done about and my career and how had I got to there and he was I trying to ask them questions about how do I get on boards. And of course a little like happens in life in different ways. When I'd given up trying to get on boards, I actually did sit on a couple of boards in Singapore for a little while. And I also had kind of this huge personal community barrier. So uh, in Sydney, for the previous 17 years, I'd been very involved in in my local community and that had led to actually some of my board, board roles too. And I got to Singapore and found I didn't have it was very hard to build a community and, and that there were kind of little pockets, but nothing seemed to, so I, I complained about it for 18 months and then then decided I was going to fix it and do something about it. And, you know, I've always been a bit of a, I guess if you're an entrepreneur, that's part of it. You you go in to fix things or you find a, a gap. Um, and so I built a, a women's network that started with 10 women in my lounge room and today has 340 members. And, you know, it was as much selfish. What did I, what was I looking for in a community? But there's a, I do a lot of leading in that and connecting people and supporting people and, you know, have 
got an enormous amount of satisfaction and pleasure from it and it's a little bit of paying it forward now in my later years of helping the the younger women, you know, when they're trying to work out what they want to do and many of them have to pivot because they've come for the same reasons. So there's kind of where where the elevator doors have opened uh, now, the sliding doors. <laughs> so true. If only I looked like Gwyneth Poulter. <laughs> <laughs> I love the perspective of kind of, you know, you'd put a lot of work into that phase, you know, when you're still in Australia of, seeking to achieve a next ambition, which was to get onto on, onto boards and and then life changes and suddenly the formula doesn't work anymore. And I guess I guess that's that's you know it's common to what happens to people in leadership roles and frankly just in life, right? And and when I listen to your story, what I kind of break it down to is the first phase where there was probably a little bit of, you know, look what's happened to me. And then the second part is, well, okay, now what am I going to do about it? And, you know, I think we all, when change kind of comes upon us, we all grapple with, you know, kind of stepping up and dusting ourselves off and say, what am I going to do about it? And, and you know, I, I guess other than sharing, you know, the, the story in itself, you know, what, what advice would you have for, you know, folks out there who are listening, who are probably sitting there right now and a whole bunch of them kind of going, that's where I'm at and I'm still drinking the tea and wondering why drinking tea in, in you know, when I was drinking coffee before, but this isn't working. What? How, how do people kind of recognise, hang on, it's time to sh- shake myself off and make new choices? Yeah, look, it's a, it's a good question. I think in part I was never allowed to waddle in my own self-pity for very long. As a kid I was a swimmer, lots of races, you don't, do your best time and you don't win and the only way to get better is to pick yourself up and go and do more training so it's kind of taught to not get too sad for too long and frankly looking inwards is not you need to understand yourself but sort of wallowing in self-pity doesn't help you move forward to me I think my perspective has always been What's the outcome I want? What am I trying to achieve? So in the example of the community, what did I want? I wanted to meet new people. I wanted to be able to talk to people from this part and that part of the network at the same time. So how do I make that happen? So, you know, you can be sitting there and it's a bit like, well, how do I get there? What is there first? The biggest part is identifying realistically because, you know, I want to be the CEO of BHPs and that might be an outcome you want, maybe. You know, AFL needs a CEO at the moment, I think. But you have to have a realistic outcome. And then it's about, well, what steps can I take? And someone used um, a a phrase yesterday, which I've heard of many times, but it's probably the right time. It's about how do you eat an elephant? Yeah. You know, and the answer is one bite at a time. And and so that's the outcome. Well, what's the first step? And and maybe that step works and maybe it doesn't. And so you go back to the true lessons of, well, why maybe didn't it work? What do I need to do differently? Or let me try something different. Um, and if that doesn't work, let me try again. If you keep trying, there'll be a path. The thing that will not get you moving is if you don't try anything. Um, you know, so, and and you've got to sometimes push yourself outside your comfort zone. And God knows I've done, had to do that 
many a time. And imposter syndrome is there for men and women. You know, I couldn't possibly do that. Why would you want to talk to me on this podcast, Wayne? Um, I still do it. <laughs> but you've got to get over that and you have to say yes and, and, and do things. So, yeah. Nice. So, Dina, now, you know, you're, um, you're living in Singapore and you have substantial community leadership roles. I'm going to go back to some of the things you're saying very early in, in our chat today and talking about influencing when you don't actually have line power. And I'm guessing that, that in a lot of community situations, that's exactly what's going on, right? You're, you're having to talk to people in the way that they listen. You have no, no line power, but if you're trying to achieve things, then that's really some of the hardest challenges in leadership when you literally have no line power. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it is absolutely all about influencing. And frankly, I would say sitting on a board is too. You know, you're only one board member of a lot of people. And so for people who aspire to, to get on boards, you know, it is all about li- listening and influencing and speaking to people, listening again. You know, I, I smile ruefully because there are occasions in uh, the Women's Network when I, I do get out and be the grumpy leader on the on the WhatsApp group. and But actually... <laughs> People come up to me afterwards and say, I'm so glad you said that. So sometimes you actually do have to put yourself out. But in a way, it is influencing people to say, hey, think about this differently. Uh, Perhaps we shouldn't be saying these sorts of things. But now really, you know, the the influencing, it's interesting because I'm slowly seeing the end of my time in, in Singapore and... I am going to have to, you know, I want this organization to keep going. So now I have to influence people to step up and take on some of the leadership roles and the planning and the strategy. And, you know, and I have to think about it differently. And and the challenging part for me will be letting go and letting other people do it differently. So creating succession, but not in my image, in effect, uh, but in a way that will keep it sustainable. And that's going to take a bit of influencing to get people to, to step up and take on those responsibilities as well. Yeah, yeah. I think that's such a fascinating space because in the first instance, it's just it's just the recognition of the time for succession planning. And secondly, exactly the point that you just made is the recognition that your successor probably shouldn't be a mirror of you. You know, the, the, the opportunity of, of recognising that the next leader is ideally someone who brings different skills, kind of a different perspective and whatever else, and, and that drives the, the growth of an organisation. But that can take a little bit of getting your head around, can't it? Because the temptation is to kind of go, who's the most like me but a few years younger? <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I, I think uh, the truth is it's probably going to be a few people. And, and in fact, in targeting them, I'm trying to find a diverse group for exactly. I mean, I haven't sat on boards and done leadership coaching and everything else to know that diversity is actually the key answer to getting better ideas and surrounding yourself with with better people than, you know, who have more skills or different skills to what you have. Uh, I learned that back, way back at the sandwich business because I knew nothing about, you know, people and, and marketing. And I learned a lot by having someone who knew a lot about it. Yeah. That's a great point you make just in reference to, to diversity. And I will grab that because I think 
a lot of leaders here, you know, there's a lot of drum beating about diversity, you know, DNI and et cetera at the moment. And, you know, I think in in quiet corners, there are leaders who kind of would say to each other, kind of it's flavor of the month. It's like, you know, it's kind of political do-gooding and, and everything. But, you know, I happen to have a different perspective and I suspect you, you do too, that that grasping diversity is is way beyond just doing the right thing. It's actually also very powerful for an organisation, whether it be a business or a community group or whatever. You know, what are your thoughts on that, Dina? Look, yes and yes and yes. So I think there is a bit of the flavour of the month and I think there is a bit of lip service. I think about diversity in a, in a slightly different way. So, you know, you could put a whole bunch of women bankers on a banking board and you don't have diversity just because they're female, because they're all bankers and they're all still thinking that way. It's about diversity of thought. And that comes often from diversity of background, whether it's education, culture, training, gender sometimes, but actually in today's day and age, not always. I mean, a female engineer is going to think like a male engineer most of the time. So it's about how do you take the different skills or backgrounds or education or cultures or even ages um, to get people thinking about things differently and then empowering them to speak up because actually to me that's the I in DNI that most people don't talk about because we can put these people together but if we don't empower them to ask the dumb question which is often not dumb at all, but nobody's mm. been mm. brave enough to think about it for a while, then that's really when it pays off. Yeah, that's such a valuable lesson. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Diversity by itself is not the answer. Diversity together with a culture that shows a deep appreciation for diversity and, and the courage and, you know, again, one of today's terms, you know, the concept of psychological safety. It's only when all of those things happen that diversity actually really does the, you know, unlocks that magic power that we love to talk about, right? Yep, absolutely. Yeah. So, Dina, you've heard my podcasts before. You, you, you know I have a, a little, a fun little concluding question, and so let's play the game. So here we go. So I give you a bucket of paint and a paintbrush. You look up from where you typically sit and, and, and work, and on the wall across from you, you paint some words that you're going to look up and see every day from here on forth. What do you paint? Well, if you'd asked me, you know, in my early 20s, I think I would have had to paint up there, you know, there's a world of opportunity and probably underneath treat others as you would like to be treated because there's really been the drivers. But for now and going forward and probably even back then, I would just put say yes because, you know, you just have to take those opportunities. You have to put yourself out there, be brave, learn from your mistakes, and you don't get any of that if you say no. So say yes. Gorgeous. I love it. And what a wonderful finishing note for uh, uh, for folks who are, who are listening because it's such a powerful piece of simple, wonderful life and leadership advice. Thank you. Dina- <laughs> Dina, this has been an absolute pleasure. You know, you, you've you've had a, a life and career of so many different changes and and pivots, as we've discussed, and and taken some amazing learns along the way, and experienced and seen lots of real hard yards. And, and it's fantastic that you're happy to come on and share those as you have today 
uh, for our listeners. And I say a huge thank you. It's been fantastic listening to you today. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure having a chat with you. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to another incredible episode where successful leaders share their hardest yards. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to let people know by sharing the episode around and rating and reviewing the podcast on the platform you listen on. Feel free to join our online community on LinkedIn. You can find the link in our show notes. I look forward to seeing you next week. Meanwhile, keep learning, find the joy in what you do, and keep believing in yourself as a leader.